from the dead, uh, do they still walk the earth, perhaps in glorified bodies? Well, let's look at that. Actually, eight individuals in the Bible experienced two funerals. Can you imagine having two funerals? I don't even want to have one. Uh, it's like I think Woody Allen said this, said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, but here's, um, here's eight individuals that had two, two funerals. So, and because they were resurrected from the dead by God. Now, of these miraculous resurrections, three happened in the Old Testament and the rest in the New. Now, in the New Testament, at least three individuals were raised from the dead by Jesus himself, who couldn't preach a good funeral because Jesus always raised them from the dead. While both Peter and Paul each raised at least one person from the dead. And this is a testimony of the Bible. This is not a bunch of hocus-pocus um, you know, mythological, Brothers Grimm kind of stuff. They were raised from the dead. And they, they just followed their master's example. Now, in the Old Testament, Elijah resurrected the son of Zarephath's widow. And you can read about it. I give all the scriptures up here for you. In 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, that's Elijah raised a little boy from the dead, delivered him back to his mother. Then Elisha, who was mentored by Elijah, call him the dynamic duo. I love both of them, reading about them. Elisha resurrected the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4, verse 35. So powerful stuff. Two, two prophets raised two dead children from the dead and gave them back to their brokenhearted mothers. Don't we wish that could happen all the time? And then a dead man came back to life when he touched Elisha's bones in the cave in 2 Kings 13, 21. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. God always keeps his word. Let me show you how accurately he will keep his word. Elijah performed seven great miracles in his life, Elijah. Now, you remember what Elisha said to him when, he's, when Elijah turned to him and said, what do you want from me? He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah said, you've asked for a hard thing. But if you're looking at me when I am taken by God up, because he wasn't resurrected, he was raptured. If you're watching, then you will have what you asked for. Well, from then on, Elisha slept with one eye open. <laughs> I got a beam on you, dude. You're not out of my sight. Well, it says that the burning fiery chariots and horses from heaven came and took Elijah up, and all Elisha could do was shout, my father, my father, and the horsemen of Israel. In other words, I see you. I got you. And the mantle fell. First thing he did was divide the Jordan. Now, if you track Elisha's life, you will see that when he died, he had only performed 13 great miracles. So wait, we're one shy of a double portion. Right? So when he's uh, uh, dies, he, he's, uh, his, he's buried in a cave. Well, later on there was a battle and uh, one of the soldiers was killed and they threw his body into this cave where Elisha had been buried. And as soon as his dead body hit the bones of Elisha, he rose from the dead. 14. 14. So if God hasn't, 
Listen, God fully answers your prayer. He doesn't leave one little thing undone. And when he says you're going to get a double portion, you're going to get a double portion. And if you're one shy, he's, even if you're dead, you're still going to get the double portion. He answers prayers even if you're dead. Okay? So in the New Testament now, moving ahead, Jesus resurrected the widow's son. Notice how many, how often God raised a child to comfort the mother. Because here it is again, Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. Resurrected the widow's son. He walked right up to the funeral procession and raised him from the dead. He also raised Jairus' daughter, another child, from the dead in Matthew 9, 25. And we all know about Lazarus. And Lazarus had two sisters weeping over him. So can you notice with me that many of the miracles Jesus did were miracles greased with compassion. He had compassion. And the prophets as well. So God is moved when we're brokenhearted. God is moved. And some of Jesus' greatest miracles were in the presence of brokenhearted people, loved ones, parents. So there you've got six resurrections. Then you move into the book of Acts. Peter raised the female disciple Tabitha from the dead in chapter 9, verses 36 to 42. And then Paul preached too long one night, and there was a young man in a second story, and he was sitting in the window, and he fell asleep. He fell asleep during a Pauline message. I can't imagine going to sleep, listening to Paul preach. But he, he fell asleep and fell out of the window and fell and died. And Paul ran and grabbed him, hugged him, prayed over him, and he was raised from the dead. So in answer to the question about whether they still walk about on planet Earth in a glorified body, the answer is no. Departed loved ones do not visit you. And I know sometimes people say, oh, I had one that visited me. Well, watch it. Because really in the Bible you don't see that. And I don't mean to step on your experience. I really don't. But you got to be careful with that. Ghosts do not wander the earth. They don't. Now, demons do, but not a departed soul that can't rest until something happens, until their murder is vindicated or something like that. That's just Hollywood. I'm going to show you that tonight. So, no, these people who were resurrected from the the, the dead are not walking around on earth in glorified bodies. Each one of these uh, one day died again and went the way of all other human beings who die. Being believers, their souls were taken into the presence of the Lord immediately, absent from the body, present with the Lord, while their dead bodies await the resurrection from the dead at the return of Christ. I can't tell you how often... I realize that church folks are confused about this. I get this question all the time. Um, I get it at at funerals. I get it all the time. Well, I don't understand. How can you be in heaven and down here in a grave at the same time? Easy. Your soul departs and goes into the presence of the Lord. Absent from the body, immediately present with the Lord. But your body goes into the grave awaiting the resurrection from the dead at the return of Christ. Well, how do they get back together? 
Are you really worried about that? I don't know how my car starts, how much less how God's going to do that. But he says he will. He says he will. He's just going to bring the glorified body that comes up out of that grave and the soul are reunited. It happened with Jesus. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradiso, paradise, today. But then we know he died and they took his body and put it in the tomb. Well, how can he be in the tomb and that day in paradise with the thief? Because his dead body was in the tomb, but his spirit was with the father. And when he was resurrected, the spirit reentered his body, his soul reentered his body and he got up and he had a glorified body. Can you imagine having a body that you don't have to diet anymore? You don't have to work out anymore. You don't have, you can cancel your curves membership when you've got a glorified body. So it, that's the way it happens. So no, the, the answer is they're not walking around um, on earth. Their bodies are in the grave waiting to be resurrected like everybody else who has died. But they did have two funerals. Wow. I, I would like to have seen Lazarus's second funeral. You know? Because he'd already been gone once. You know, his sisters could say, been there, got, done that, got the T-shirt. You know, now he's gone home. All right. Now, let's go to the next question. Everybody clear on that? Okay, let's go to the next question. Let's talk about angels. As Billy Graham would say, angels. Angels have a, or do angels have a spirit, soul, and body like we do? If not, What's the difference? In other words, what is an angel like? What is an angel composed of? What is a real angel? All right, this is really, really interesting to me. First, angels are real. Everybody say with me, angels are real. There's, there's no doubt some around here right now. I'm serious. I'm going to show you the verse that'll show that'll that'll back that up. But angels are real. They are spiritual be- beings that have intelligence. They have emotions. They have a will. We know they have a will because a third of them rebelled against God and went their own way. And they have become demon spirits. But they do not have a physical body like we do. They are spirit beings. This is true of both the good and the evil angels, demons. Now, angels are real and so are demons. So are demons. Unfortunately, they're real. And are they active today? Oh, my. But they're still dogs on a leash. They are still subject to the providence and the permission of God. But are they real? You better believe it. Can they be dabbled with? Yes. Can they be allowed into your life? If you do the wrong things, you can have satanic influence and satanic oppression over your life. So both are real. Angels possess intelligence. I gave you the verses here so you can look them up, okay? Intelligence. They think. They enunciate. They speak. Um, They show emotion. What did they do when Jesus was born? It says they rejoiced. They were thrilled when the Messiah was born. So they have emotion. They have joy. They have sorrow. You can't tell me that at the cross, when it was like midnight at high noon, that every angel in heaven was not bowing his head 
and was somber at the crucifixion of the Son of God. Oh, they have emotions. And they exercise their will. We, we mentioned that. Although they do not have physical bodies, they are still personalities. Because they are created beings, their knowledge is limited because they're created. They're not like God. God is the only one who is omniscient, all-knowing. The devil's not omniscient. Demons aren't omniscient. And angels are not omniscient. And we're certainly not omniscient. But God knows everything, the end from the beginning and everything in between. This means, when it comes to the angels, they don't know all things like God does. For instance, speaking of his return, look what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So the angels are limited in what they know. They want to know. And Peter talked about them wanting to peer into the things that have to do with salvation, wanting to understand it more because there are certain aspects of our redemption they, they don't understand. It was a mystery that only unfolded after Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. So the angels are limited in their knowledge. They do seem to have greater knowledge than humans, though, which a lot of times is no big accomplishment. <laughs> but now watch. But it may be due to three things. First, angels were created as an order of creatures higher than humans. Therefore, they innately possess greater knowledge. Second, even fallen angels are more aware than many believers of what the Bible says. Now, I'm going to read that one again because what a shame that is. But even fallen angels, the demons, have more awareness of certain things the Bible says than do the redeemed. And I can prove it to you. James 2 verse 19 says... You believe there is one God, you do well. Even who? The demons do what? Believe and tremble because they know their judgment is coming. And it makes them tremble. So you've got the vast mass of humanity. The largest portion of humanity has no belief in a coming judgment. But the demons know it. They know that it's coming. And they tremble. I got in where when I read the Bible, I tremble over it. I'm serious. I read it and I tremble over it. When I read certain parts of it, there, there are times I just say, when I, when I see what people did, reading about the kings, uh, reading 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, these kings that went into such sin and carried all of their kingdom with them and the, the mistakes that people made and the, the, the way they were so stiff-necked and stubborn and didn't believe God and brought themselves under judgment after judgment. There's times I, I read and I just tremble because I know that the God of the Bible is the God of creation. And I know that what I read about him, it's true. And I tremble at it. There are times I just, I just shut it and say, oh God, Oh, God. And now I'll open it again and start. The demons do that, and they tremble. They fear God. 
when a lot of people do not, to their own demise. Revelations 12.12 says this, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why, everybody? Read it with me. Because he knows he has a short time. But do you know how many human beings have no clue there even is a devil, much less that he has a short time? But he knows his time is short, so he, he, he punches into overdrive especially before the return of Christ. And I personally believe we're seeing increased satanic activity in the world. All the while, we're also seeing great moves of God in the world. I don't want to give the devil too much credit. God is moving greatly in the world, but man, so is the enemy because he knows he has a short time. So he has knowledge. Angels have knowledge, even when they're fallen. Third, angels have have gained knowledge through long observation of human activities. They've been around. They were here when Martin Luther wandered the earth. They were here in all the centuries gone by. The devil has been alive and well and active since Eve ate the fruit. And, And so he has accumulated knowledge. Now, you know what he knows? He knows your weakness. He knows your weakness. He knows what he had you with before you got saved. That's why you can be cooking along and everything going great, and suddenly you experience a temptation that comes out of nowhere, and it directly appeals and targets your weaknesses. Fiery arrow. He shoots it, and it lands in your brain in the form of a thought. Virtually all... Spiritual warfare happens between your two ears in the gray matter right there. And he shoots those fiery arrows. And, and, and so you've got to know your own weaknesses at least as well as he does so that you can guard against them. Think about Jesus. He couldn't find one. He couldn't find a weakness in Jesus because he never had one. Okay. So unlike humans, angels do not have to study the past. They were there, okay? Now, therefore, they know how others have acted and reacted in situations, and they can predict with a greater degree of accuracy how we may act in similar circumstances. If he places a certain kind of bait in front of you, temptation, he knows from from so-and-so and and -and so-and-so generations down that it really worked with them, so it might work with you. So, so angels have intelligence, whether they're good or bad. Satan's intelligence is far beyond ours. And if it were not for the blood of Christ and the protection of God, we would be no match, not even close. But thank God, greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm so glad that Jesus whooped him because I couldn't have whooped him. Amen. So though they have wills, angels, like all creatures, are subject to the will of God. Good angels are sent by God to help believers. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent to minister to those who are to be heirs of salvation? If you're an heir of salvation tonight, raise your hand. If you're an heir of salvation, so guess what? Ministering spirits, angels, are sent to minister to you. 
I think one of the revelations of heaven is going to be, we're going to realize how many times an angel saved our neck. Because they are sent to minister to those who are saved. Now, how do they minister when they come? Well, here's some of the activities ascribed to angels in the Bible. They praise God. They praise God. Psalms are full of that. They worship God. There's a difference. Worship is for who he is. Praise is over what he has done. They do both. They rejoice in what God does. Job. Don't you remember when Job describes how the angels rejoiced when God flung the stars into space and created the universe? The angels rejoiced. They serve God. They appear before God. We see that in Job. The day the sons of God, the angels, came and appeared before God, and Satan slipped in there with them. But it's like they were reporting for duty. Okay, here we are. We're reporting. What, what today? What do you want us to do now? Where are you sending us? If we, if we could have our eyes open, like Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes would be open, when his servant looked around and said, man, we are outnumbered. We're dead, Elisha. It's over. It's been real. And Elisha just sighed and said, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw the chariots of fire and the angel of God surrounding them. And then he made the great statement, there are more that are with us than are with them. Because the angels of God had been posted around these two men because they were God's men. And if we could have our eyes open right now, we would see so much angelic activity going on right now. Right now. They, they, are, they are instruments of God's judgments, and that's a really somber part of the angels. They're sent to judge. It'll be angels that are sent out when Christ returns to separate the wheat from the tares, to gather the tares and put them in bundles and cast them into the fire. And it is angels that play a part in gathering God's people and taking them up. Angels. They're involved in judgment. They bring answers to prayer. Acts 12, 5 to 10. Remember when Peter was all locked up in jail? And he thought the next day they were going to take his head. And he fell asleep. He had no fear. He fell asleep. No extra strength, etc. PM. No NyQuil. No sleep aids. He had total peace. Well, if I die tomorrow, I die. But that night, an angel came into the room, into the cell, and it says it lit up the whole room. He shined, and he struck Simon Peter with his sword and woke him up. Peter thought he was having a vision. He said, stand up quick and follow me. And he let him out. And when the angel approached the locked prison door, it swung open. And Peter walked out, and he walked him into the street. And when Peter was set free and had been walked into the street, the angel disappeared. So they are powerful. When they come into a place, invariably, there, there is a brilliant light. They shine. You don't take an angel's hand, like I've read, and say, can I have this dance? When you see a real angel, you hit the ground and you are trembling. Amen. 
They observe Christian order, work, and suffering. They watch it. In the book of Revelations, it says there's an angel over the churches. They encourage in times of danger. Paul is in that ship. He's being taken to Rome. He is going to be taken before Caesar. And, and the ship he's in, is a, it's a prisoner ship. And they enter into a storm that will not stop. Finally, the entire ship gives up fighting and says, we're doomed, we're done, we're not going to make it. But Paul was down underneath seeking God, fasting. And it says, suddenly an angel of God appeared to him and said, fear not, Paul, for God has given to you not only your own life, but everybody sailing with you. He said, you're going to crash, but not one life will be lost. That was told him by an angel who came and stood right next to him. They care for the righteous at the time of death. They escort you into the presence of God. There is the verse. Jesus told Luke 16, verse 22. That's his story. It says when the rich man died and his servant died, the rich man went into hell. But it says an angel, Jesus said this, an angel took the poor man, Lazarus, into Abraham's bosom. bosom. He was taken by an angel. I personally believe when the death of the saints comes, then an angel comes and takes them into the presence of the Lord. Angels are an entirely different order of beings than humans. Human beings don't become angels after they die. Angels will never become and never were human beings. Catch that. God created the angels like he created humanity, different unique. The Bible nowhere states that angels are created in the image and likeness of God as humans are. Angels are spiritual beings that can, to a certain degree, take on physical form, but only the good ones. Never in the Bible do you ever see a demon spirit taking on human form. Never. But you see angels taking on human form. Angels appeared to Abraham before the judgment of Sodom. Angels ate with him in his tent. And then angels brought the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah when it fell. Humans are primarily physical beings, but with a spiritual component. The greatest thing we can learn from the holy angels is their instant, unquestioning obedience to God. But never worship one. Never ask God if you can see one. Just know that they're there. And if God chooses for you to see one, you'll see it. Next question. Is it true that God does not like divorces? Boy, is this shifting gears or what? We're going from angels to divorce. Here's a question. Is it true that God does not like divorces and after the first divorce, you're still bound to that person forever? And if you are remarried, do you need to divorce and stay single forever? Now, let me answer this. It's true. God doesn't like divorce. In fact, the Bible says... Quote, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I hate it. It goes on. This is Malachi 2. To divorce your wife, God's saying this now. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the New Living Translation. He continues, so guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. 
Now, that pulls no punches. Let me just delve into this further now. The second part of this question is more difficult. We know God hates divorce. If you've been through a divorce and the hell of it, then you know God has got to hate it. But now, the second part's more difficult. And the second part of the question, looking at it again right here, the second part is this. Um, if you're remarried, you need to divorce and stay single forever. Now, I think that question comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church where he says this, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, to the married I command, yet not I, but who? So he's speaking by the Lord. He says, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried. So there's that question. That's where it came from. Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, a little bit of history here. In Paul and Jesus' day, divorce was undertaken for next to nothing. If you didn't flip, if the wife didn't flip the eggs right, he said, you know what? It's been real. Here's the certificate of divorce. See you later. Divorce was easy and it was cruel to the woman because the man was the leader of the culture. And the woman a lot of times had nowhere to go, had no way to make income and was just put in the street. And Jesus saw this happening. Matter of fact, every feminist ought to love Jesus Christ because nobody in history has elevated women like Jesus Christ. Okay? That's free. That's an aside. That's not in my notes. All right. Now, men would casually put their wives away for just stupid, silly reasons. So what Jesus and the New Testament writers did was they raised a standard against this, and they upheld the sanctity of the marriage bond because it was being treated so flippantly. Just, ah, yeah, we're married, so what? You know, I don't, you know, we have a, a bad argument, I'm out of here. I believe divorce is a spirit that not only affects marriages, but as soon as something gets tough in a relationship, the person that has that spirit boogies. They don't try to work it out. You see this with, you see this in marriages, you see it with people in churches. You know, get a little problem in a church and they just flee, run to the next church, carry their baggage with them, and the same baggage surfaces in the next church sooner or later. Then they leave and go to another one. And nobody ever makes them work through their problems. That's free too. But divorce is a spirit, okay? Uh, and, it's a, and it's a learned response, I think, to uh, trouble, conflict. Now, notice that Paul says his instructions concerning marriage are the command of the Lord. The wife, he says, is not to walk away from her husband. Now, I want you to remember something with me. Let's balance this out with the rest of the Word of God. In Matthew 5.32, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us what we call the exception clause. He's talking about marriage and divorce. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Everybody say to me, that's a hard saying. And what does he mean by that? Jesus makes clear that divorce is allowable if sexual immorality has broken the marriage bond. That's the exception clause. But even then, it doesn't mean you have to divorce 
should this happen. In other words, you're not under the command of the Lord to divorce. If forgiveness can take place, the marriage can be saved. But I would also add that in the case, and and this is my little addendum, let me add another exception. In the case of physical or extreme emotional abuse, God certainly would not expect you to remain in that situation. Let me put it another way. You should never risk your life, literally, to stay in a marriage. I've helped women find shelters because the husband was beating them. And my experience has been, if they hit you once and get away with it, they're liable to do it again. So I would say to a woman, if your husband, and I mean, I'm not talking about a pillow, but if he truly strikes you, that needs to be brought to somebody else's attention, and you need help fast. If it keeps up, I'm never going to counsel a woman to stay in that where they could die. Uh Uh-uh. And that's free too. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that a man divorcing his wife makes her commit adultery? If you divorce her, you know, she didn't flip the eggs right, so you say, here's your certificate, get out of here and divorce her. But if you do that, you make her commit adultery. What do you mean? I think the meaning here is that in putting her out, he opens her up to vulnerability and the sinful embraces of someone else. And also into yet another marriage when the first one was not dissolved for scriptural reasons. Let me put it this way. I told you it was going to be quiet in here. Let me put it this way. Our culture treats marriage almost like they did in the first century. When they passed, when the Supreme Court passed no-fault divorce in the 60s, I believe it was part and parcel of the ruination of America. Well, if you just can't get along, you just can't get along, so you divorce. You don't have to have a great reason, just divorce. Before they passed that, you had to have a major good reason, and you had to prove it, and a lot of times the court would make you work through it. But now, oh, well, we just have irreconcilable differences, so we're out. And that has started a snowball in our culture where now a vast bulk of our society never even bothers to marry. Why fool with it? Why do I need a piece of paper to prove my love? And I do not understand the sanctity of marriage. Jesus said, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. He was strong about it. Now, if you've experienced a divorce and have remarried, does all this mean you should get out of that second marriage because it didn't happen biblically? Everybody say with me, no. I had a woman, I preached in another church, and a woman came up to me afterwards. She said this. She said, Pastor Jeff, she said, um, I, I have, I'm divorced, and I, and I divorced, my, we divorced years ago, and my former husband has remarried. But you know what? I'm believing God that that marriage is going to fail. She was as sincere as she could be. And she said, would you agree with me for that? And I said, no. I said, are you kidding me? And she said, no, because I know, based on what the Bible says, that God doesn't honor that marriage. And I'm just praying that we will get it back together like the Bible says. She misunderstood the Bible. 
What does she not understand? The moment you said, I do, with that second marriage, third marriage, or whatever, it is done. Say with me, you can't unscramble eggs. Well, I just know I'm in my third marriage, and I know that the first one was right. The second one's gone, but bless God, that first one's still around, but he's married, but I believe God to destroy that marriage so we can get back together. You are not praying according to the will of God. Because hmm. you can't unscramble eggs. Let me prove it to you in the Bible. Well, we'll get to it in just a second. You did it before God. That is, you got married, second marriage, third. You did it before God, and he will help you to make it work. As soon as you say, I do, God is going to help you. God is invested in that marriage. You can't unscramble eggs by divorcing a current marriage to return to a former marriage. Listen to what the Bible says, Jeremiah 3, verse 1. If a man divorces a woman and she goes and marries someone else, he will not take her back again. For that would surely corrupt the land. There you go. So let me just summarize this. If you divorce for the wrong reasons, but you're remarried, God's for it. Because you said, I do. If you want out of your current marriage because you're not getting along, get counseling and figure out why you're not getting along. But fight for that marriage tooth and nail to the end. And don't give up easily on it. Take it seriously. So say with me, no matter what marriage I'm in, when I said I do, God did too. All right, give the Lord a hand tonight. <laughs> All right, question. Is it true that once you die, you're going to get a second chance to be saved? Who told you that? <laughs> Absolutely not. The Scripture is clear. It's God's plan that all men die only once. After that, they will stand before God and be judged. Man's life and his works on earth end with death. What remains is the result of his life and what he did in this life. And it will be judged by God, what he did with the life God gave him. But you're going to die once. You will not come back as something else. Reincarnation is an Eastern mystical lie. Man does not return to die a second time. Though some, like we looked at in the first question, uh, have died twice. They were really the exception and not the rule. And they don't break general law. All right, here's one. If a Christian commits suicide, will they go to heaven? This is a tough one. I've presided over quite a few funerals of suicides. And it's one of the most difficult things you can do when you're in that place. Because here's what the family always wants to know. They want to know this. If a Christian commits suicide, did, did my son, did my daughter go to hell? My spouse, did they go to hell if they committed suicide? Now, first off, Christians are not exempt from depression and suicidal thoughts. 
Can anybody amen me on that one? Anybody been depressed once in your life? Raise your hand. How about once this week? No, don't raise your hand. But how many of you, and and I'll say it, I've had them. I I never seriously considered suicide, but the thought went through my, my mind. What about you? How many of you? Okay. Christians aren't exempt from that because they're saved. William Cowper, for instance, who wrote the uh, gospel song, There is a Fountain, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. I love it. Okay. Proclaiming Christ's forgiveness and love. He repeatedly attempted suicide. The one who wrote that. So what's up with that? Even saints like Moses, Elijah, and Jonah went through periods of extreme depression and even suicidal thoughts. You remember Elijah running from Jezebel? He gets under that juniper tree and he says, it's enough now, Lord, kill me. I'm no better than my fathers, kill me. He wasn't going to kill himself, but he was asking God to kill him. Kill me, God. I'm done with this prophet stuff. He was suicidal. He just didn't want to do it himself. So it's not a sin to have a suicidal thought or to be depressed. Because we live in a tough, disappointing world that sometimes takes us down into the blues. really does. happens to me fairly frequently. I probably read too much news. And when I read that news, I, it, I just go, I'm living in a lunatic asylum, and the lunatics are at the head of it. They're running it. And, and it, gets, it gives me the, <laughs> it gives me the, it, the blues. It just it depresses me. Like, how do they think that or do that or decide that or litigate that? Or how did they create that law? I mean, it's just, what are they doing? Anybody ever hear that old song, they're coming to take me away? Ha ha, they're coming to take me away. You remember that? Some of you are too young, too bad. You missed a great song. Anyway, that's the way I feel sometimes. They're coming to take me away. So, um, It is a difficult, if you really just look at what's happening in the world and and lose your vertical perspective, it's depressing. Now, here's where I stand on Christian suicide. Are you ready? I believe the Bible is clear that we go to heaven or hell based on our relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, follow me. Yes, suicide raises many spiritual and difficult questions. But one thing I know from my Bible, God saved you by his grace when you believe. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done or not done. So none of us can boast about it. We obtain heaven, folks, only by our belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we go to hell only by rejecting Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now think with me, follow me, because nowhere in the Bible does it say if you commit suicide, God's going to send you to hell. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to show you the verse. Some people point to this passage in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Here's what it says. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him? Uh Uh-oh. Now that's where you get the belief that if you kill yourself, it is the unpardonable sin, you're going to go to hell. Because if you destroy the temple, God's going to destroy you. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Until you look at the original language and you look at the word destroy, 
The word for destroy here is from a Greek word that can also mean to corrupt or to spoil. It's not just or only talking about destroying yourself. Scripture teaches that sometimes God will take a person's life prematurely in order to keep them from more deeply corrupting themselves. Do you know that? The Bible says there is a sin that leads to death. For instance, Paul wrote of the man in the Corinthian church involved in extreme sexual immorality. He was having an affair with his stepmother. Paul said, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand that man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, let's get him delivered from his sin before it takes him prematurely. So the above scripture could read, if any man continues deeply corrupting the temple of God and ignores all of God's warnings, God might take him home early to save him from even worse corruption. And I've seen that happen with people. I'm sure of it. In other words, it's not talking about suicide. I don't believe it's talking about suicide. Because we are saved by belief in Christ. Here's what I've come to. Anybody that takes their own life is sick. They're not thinking clearly. When cancer kills you, you're sick. When a heart attack kills you, you're sick. If you take your life, you're sick. You're not thinking clearly. One day, we we were having church. And there was a lady on the front row, and um, Kathy and I had known her for years, beautiful young lady, long, strawberry blonde hair, almost looked like a model, beautiful young lady. And we've known her, we'd pastored her for years. She kind of came in and out. But this particular Sunday, she's in church, hands raised, worshiping God with all of her heart. That afternoon, she went and got a gun and went to a park and took her life with it. Worshiping in the morning, suicide in the afternoon. So I'm called to the house, and here's her children. And they're they're in a state of shock. And so I talk to the children for a second, and I just say, I say, "Um, your mother's in heaven, and do you believe in Jesus? Yes, we believe in Jesus. Well, how, how, why did she do that? Well, see, I, found, I did a little digging. I found out she was messing with some drugs. And they had messed with her mind. And she did what she did. But I know she's in heaven. Because she loved Jesus. So, Pastor Jeff, then how can you go do that? Hey, uh, Elijah wanted to die. Moses said, Lord, I wish you'd take me out and get me away from these people. (laughs) Okay? I lost my clicker back there. Um, I've presided over a funeral where I knew the person loved the Lord, but this happened. I don't believe that that took away their salvation. That's where I stand. Now, I'm going to add an addendum with this. Having said this, let me close by saying that suicide... I believe is one of the most selfish acts you can do. The person who does it, believe me, I know because I've been there and seen it. 
the person who does it leaves behind a trainload of broken hearts, shattered dreams, unforgettable memories, in the case of this girl, uh, motherless children. And do you know that I've, I've looked at this, I've read this, that children of a suicide are far more likely to take the same out when under pressure. So you're leaving a legacy. It's like you're creating a weakness in your, in your legacy, in your descendants. And the legacy it leaves behind is one of devastation and loss every single time. So here's my advice. And, and believe me, I know depression can really take you down into blackness. But watch this. David talked to himself and said, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Now say the next part with me, hope in God. See, when you take the out of suicide, you're saying there's no more hope in God. And that's never true. So say it with me again, hope in God. Now read the rest with me, good and loud, preach it. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Amen. Amen. And I believe that everybody in depression and they feel like, man, there's no way out. I don't see any more answers. I'm just going to check out. You need to remember that verse. Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. He's going to break through for me. He's going to answer a prayer for me. He's going to open a door for me. He's going to make a way for me. He's going to lower his hand and deliver me. He's going to heal me. He's going to do something. And that's what I believe. Let's stand up together tonight, can we? Can we just thank the Lord for his goodness? Lord, we just praise you and thank you. You are the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Lord, we praise you for the goodness of God. In the mighty name of the Lamb of God, let's lift our hands, just worship for a moment, can we? Go ahead and lead us, Carlito. Thank you, Lord.